The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood because safety begins with knowing. Anyone who watches crime dramas could reasonably conclude that when someone is murdered, barring bizarre and extenuating circumstances, the case is solved. That is, through high-tech forensics, moral resolve, or simply the near-mythic competence of American law enforcement, killers are ultimately sent to jail. But as an investigative reporter who has worked in one of the most violent cities in the country for nearly 15 years, I can tell you this is not true. And that is the point of this podcast, because unsolved killings represent more than just statistics. It's a psychic toll of stories untold that infects an entire community. The final violent moments of a victim's life that remain shrouded in mystery. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And we are investigative reporters who live in Baltimore City. Welcome to the land of the unsolved. This callous coward with a gun in his hand shot a cop in the head tonight. My heart grieves for Detective Sean Souter. It's no way that I would think if you're a good partner that you're going to lose sight of me. Now, if they thought at the smallest level that it involved police officers tied to their case, there's no way they would have given that case back. Yeah, listen, after a case gets 72 hours old, it gets cold. If you don't do something in 72 hours, you really have a problem. Welcome back to The Land of the Unsolved, the podcast that examines both the evidence and politics of unsolved murder. Today, we're going to do two things, give you a preview of our next case and discuss new evidence in the shooting death of Detective Sean Souter. Joining us later for that discussion will be Afro-newspaper editor Sean Yost. But before he joins us, we want to talk a little bit about our next case, the life and death of Jody Lecourneau. We decided to take this case because it touches on two facts that are important to this podcast, the vexing mystery of an unsolved case and the inexplicable politics that often engulf it. Jody was a 24-year-old woman who was shot to death at 3 o'clock in the morning in a Baltimore County parking lot. But those facts are just the tip of the iceberg, and it's the murkier aspects of why she is in the parking lot and what the police did afterwards that we will be exploring in depth. So we're going to play a quick preview of the case now, and then afterwards we'll be joined by Sean. March 6th, 1996, just inside the Baltimore County line at a 24-hour grocery store where the scattered customers and skeleton staff witnessed a scene that must have looked odd. It was snowing, 3 o'clock in the morning, when a car drove across the parking lot, turned slightly toward the store, and then suddenly stopped a few yards from the entrance. But then, inexplicably, a white BMW pulled up behind it. A man described as African-American parked, 
casually stepped out of the vehicle and reached into the driver's side window. He then removed something sitting on the dashboard, then just as nonchalantly gets back into the car and drives away. But the car now parked askance to the store entrance remains behind. Its engine running, an occupant slumped over the wheel. So as the scene unfolds, the stragglers and the cashiers soon realize that what they saw was not just odd, but terrifying. They were in fact witnesses of the last moments of a young woman's life, that sitting in the car now motionless in front of the store was a 24-year-old bank teller who had been shot in the back and left for dead. And that the scene unfolding in the front of the store was the beginning of a mystery that would last for decades and raise questions about the fate circumstance, and destiny that would haunt the family she left behind. In fact, one can imagine the scattered witnesses wondering who was this young woman now lying dead. How did she get there? And why was she shot execution style in the vacant parking lot of a suburban grocery store? That was the question that began that night on a cold, desolate evening in 1996. Who killed Jody LeCornu? And why? You know, people are like, why are you doing this? It's killing you. It's not going to bring her back. But then I just, I say, well, how, how could I not do it? I knew that she was living in Towson and, and, and going out in, at, at the tavern a lot, but I, I had no idea to the extent of what was going on. Well, uh, um, her being on a lot... At that time of the morning and putting the window down on her car for to talk to someone that's highly unusual. She shot in the back and the killer or killers still on the loose. I, I internalized that last discussion we had. To this day, I mean, intellectually, I, I, I know that we're all grown people and, and responsible for our own actions, but uh, emotionally... I still believe that had I kept my mouth shut and just went to work, uh, we wouldn't be having this discussion at this moment. In the last three episodes of The Land of the Unsolved, we've explored in detail the death of Detective Sean Souter. Souter was found in a West Baltimore alley in November of 2017, shot in the head with his own gun. And the case remains unsolved, which is unusual for a case involving a police officer. Which is why we look so closely at the case, because Souter's death took on profound implications when we learned that the day before he died, he was set to testify in front of a federal grand jury as part of an investigation into the Gun Trace Task Force. The task force was a corrupt unit of eight officers who were convicted of drug dealing, robbing residents, and stealing overtime pay. But Souter's death and his involvement in a 2010 case did something that changed the course of the investigation. The initial charges against the officers all stemmed from wiretaps recorded in 2016. But Souter's involvement in the attempted robbery of a Baltimore resident and later planting drugs in his car dated back to 2010. Thus, it expanded the scope of the entire investigation into the Gun Trace Task Force. 
And with that, the case in a sense indicted the entire department for a scandal that dates back seven years. And perhaps, though we don't know this, implicated people who were much higher up than the officers in the GTTF. Which brings us to this report just issued by the federal monitors overseeing the consent decree between the police department and the Department of Justice. The city entered the agreement after the Justice Department determined that the Baltimore City Police Department practiced unconstitutional and racist policies. And the monitor was appointed by the federal judge overseeing the case to report on how the BPD is complying with the consent decree. But in the report issued just a week ago, there were stunning facts. To understand what it means, we have to go back to the day Souter was shot. Then police commanders made the fateful decision to lock down six blocks of the Harlem Park neighborhood where Officer Souter was shot. They said they were looking for a lone black gunman who Souter allegedly confronted shortly before he was shot. Uh, Souter was with a partner from the Homicide Division. They were in the Bennett street area investigating a 2016 murder and while they were in the vicinity they observed a man engaged in suspicious behaviors. The man is again vaguely described as an adult African-American male. We don't have much more than that right now. And they used this search to justify locking down Harlem Park for not just a few hours or a day but six days. But the monitor said there was no justification for this lockdown. That, in fact, police knew within 36 hours there was no immediate threat. It raises an important question, one that is fundamental to the Souter case. Why would police lock down the neighborhood for six days when they knew there was no threat? What would be the point of that? And to discuss this question, I'm joined by Afro newspaper Baltimore editor Sean Yost. So, Sean, the reason I wanted to bring you in here was because, well, number one, you should tell a little bit about what you're doing. You're the editor, Baltimore editor of the Afro newspaper, and every day you have something on the top of the paper. Each time the paper comes out, what does it say and what does it mean? We have a banner at the very top of the paper, uh, Who Killed Detective Sean Souter, 267 days and counting. So since the um, death, murder, it was was, uh, ruled a homicide, so murder, of... Detective Souter, we've been we've we've had this banner up counting the days since his since his death, um, and still no answers as to how he died or who did it. Why did you, as a newspaper, decide to do that? We, I mean, I think it's appropriate. I mean, everybody wants to know why don't you can't. So I think the I think maybe certain political forces and 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 I suspect certainly the leadership within the Baltimore Police Department would love for people to forget that this man was murdered. Um, but we, as a newspaper, we just made the decision, really the publisher made the decision, uh, Francis Murphy Draper, that we're not going to let anybody forget. And every week until he, until um, there is an answer connected to his death, we're going to remind the people of what happened. So that's what makes this report from the uh, Monitor so profound. And most of the media in, in the city ignored it. But what was fascinating to me and what I think was important about the case was that they determined the monitors, and we explained before in our preamble how the monitor are the one monitoring the consent decree, the police within 24 to 36 hours knew there was no black man with a gun roaming around the neighborhood, and yet they kept the neighborhood locked down for six days. Now, I know what I think about that, what that's about, but well, let me just put out my theory, that if you're trying to hide something or you're trying to distract, and this police department is expert at distracting, 
that you do something so that people look over here, not over there. And having the neighborhood locked down for six days, having this parameter where people are getting warrant checked, uh, which incidentally, the monitor also determined that they were illegally checking people's warrants, illegally stopping people without probable cause. But when you set up this six-day thing, you're looking where? Not at the community, not at what happened with Souter. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, is that sort of a, you know, a, a, um, something that resonates with you from your experience in covering police? Well, I keep going back to, and, I've, and I've, I've, I've said this several times in different interviews, but I keep going back to Ivan Potts because there's a lot of wisdom that that... And Ivan Potts was arrested by the Gun Trace Task Force, right. which is, you know, the whole root of the Souter case. Exactly. And, and Potts said... You know, he said a lot of profound things, but one of the things that he said was the Baltimore Police Department, to your point about distraction, is expert at steering the pot, keeping things steered up in the community, as opposed to service and protection. They, they keep elements in the, the Baltimore Police Department, keep things steered up in the community. It's almost as if it's good for business as far as they're concerned. Um, and that's what that I mean think about that yeah. if, they made, if they made the determination That this guy with the, the, the Hooded right. white striped jacket Didn't do it um, You know that was right That was the only that was the only description Right that they had coming out of The community so why keep the community Locked down for six days And Tay you were at a meeting In Harlem Park that we talked about in the previous podcast Where people you know came to a church the civilian reward went into the community because it was so acute. And what were people saying? I mean, this was something that had a profound impact on the community, correct? Absolutely. Uh, Senator Joe Carter uh, was the head of the Civilian Review Board and called a community meeting so people could discuss what happened during that lockdown. And the people that were there were deeply affected. I remember one mother who was actually on a trip out of the country and she knew her young son was alone in Harlem Park and she knew that the police were stopping young black males every day. And she was scared to death for his life, that there would be some kind of interaction or altercation with the police department uh, during this lockdown period. And there were others that were very much upset by the fact that they were stopped, that they were carted, that they were asked to show the papers that they were supposed to carry to prove that they were residents of the Harlem Park neighborhood. Uh, Residents were really upset. And things that might seem small, like not getting your mail delivered on time, it was just insult to the injury of having your neighborhood cordoned off and turned into a mini police state. It made all the more extraordinary that at that time, the police department was under consent decree for practicing unconstitutional and racist policing policies. But the one thing that stood out to me, and the reason I brought this up that a gentleman said that evening, was he said that the decision to lock down a neighborhood was not made by the officer on the street or the homicide detectives. That was made at the highest levels of the police department. He said they don't make those decisions. So when the highest part of the police department is saying, let's lock down that neighborhood, what were they trying to hide when it came to Souter's death? And that's the question, I think, that we're here. What, what are they trying to hide? That's the exact question. Um, there are no coincidences, at least. No, no. Um, and and when, you, when you make the statement and, it's, and, and there's, there's, there's evidence, empirical evidence to, to demonstrate it, that the command staff or leadership in, in the Baltimore Police Department, rather, um, don't make those types of tactical decisions, I guess. Um, then why? Why? So that's an extraordinary action, right. you know. Um, 
so why why this extraordinary action? I mean, it, people could look at it two ways. They could say, well, it was an extraordinary action because a police officer was killed. Or they could say it was an extraordinary action because they were trying to cover up what happened with that police officer. Well, let's be clear. During the trial, the uh, the seven officers of the gun trace task force, two of the officers, uh, Daniel Herschel and um, one other guy. Who was the other guy? Uh, Jen- no, it wasn't Jenkins. It was, um, I can't remember. But there were two trials of two officers. And it got awfully close to the top because people were giving testimony and making intimations about the head of ID, about the commissioner, all being tacitly involved in knowing that overtime was being given for not working. So I think that when the word got out that Souter was found shot in that alley, I think the police did two things. I think they created this suspect, which they have never been able to tell us. We did a story in the Afro about that. No one has been able to identify where this came from, right? Right. Extraordinary evidence that they made public, and no one's ever been able to say it. And I I think, number two, you know, they were worried about something getting, you know, that Souter was going to open up a can of worms. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And then if we take it even further... um, the resignation of, of D'Souza. Um, the former police commissioner, Daryl D'Souza, who served about six months and resigned amid accusations that he didn't file taxes, but it turns out there might be more to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, there were, D'Souza, it seemed clear to me, and I think you all would agree, D'Souza was leaving breadcrumbs at a few different instances about what happened to Souter, or and and maybe information about the Gun Trace Task Force, and it it, it always seemed like some cryptic statement he would make um, about th- those two incidents, and uh, lo and behold, you know when it initially comes out about his taxes, the first read was, oh, we're gonna we're gonna it's gonna be taken care of within a day. I the mayor, I back my commissioner. For 24 or 48 hours later, it was basically over. Yeah. Um, so what happened? What? How did? How did we make the transition from this is a tax issue that can be easily resolved to I got to resign? Yeah. Um, unless, unless. It, so it seems clear to me that it was something beyond income taxes that forced him out as the commissioner of Baltimore City. And hey, you were at a press conference with me, and Sean, you were to your point, which you're very right. It's very interesting. It was the first time I heard this. Um, Police Commissioner D'Souza said, referred to it as the unfortunate incident. He was doing this in the context of the launching of what what is known as the Independent Review Board, which is looking into the investigation. And he kept saying the unfortunate incident. And then when I asked him, you know, where the suspect, where they got this information, remember what he said? Right. He couldn't actually tell us where that particular tip came from, why they were saying that there was a suspect that was so specifically described as an African-American male in a dark shirt with a white stripe. So if our police commissioner doesn't have the information, who as does? To who, who, who does have it? And Sean, how fraught is that description to say? I mean, how volatile is that to say? Unconfirmed that there is a black male with a white stripe. I mean, the history there is deep. Well, we pointed out on numerous occasions that I, a black male, six foot two, two hundred twenty-five pounds, has a black Adidas, <laughs> a black Adidas uh, track jacket with a white stripe, and I'm not the only black gentleman in Baltimore City with such attire. Um, yeah, uh, and 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 common and dangerous because who knows what I mean 
this this happens every day in, in our in our city. Unfortunately, young men get grabbed up falsely. And um, well, let's think about it from a narrative perspective. So you're in command staff and you hear, oh, my God, Sean Souter shot in the head. You know he's about to testify. You know the one thing about this case, the one thing about the Souter case, it was very uh, fundamental to changing the whole investigation of the gun trace task force is it took a case that was pretty much isolated in 2016 and brought it all the way back to 2010. As we said before in the preamble, in 2010, Sean Souter, along with two other detectives, uh, one of them, Jenkins, who was the mastermind of the whole um, sort of gun trace task force, were uh, tried to rob a resident and, and then planted drugs. So suddenly, the case that has been isolated to this 2016 to a bunch of road cops becomes a, a systemic seven-year thing. So you're up there in headquarters, and you're thinking, oh, my God. And your main thing you're worried about is if people focus on Souter's death and think that he killed himself or that someone else killed him inside the department, you don't want people thinking that. So the first thing you say is, it was a black man with a white stripe. Then you can't account for it, right? You can't explain where it came from. And then you lock down the neighborhood for six days, which I think, Sean, shows just how desperate this police department is to maintain its control over the city despite its corruption. Yeah, and I mean, you know, then, you know, most recently we had a story two weeks ago in the Afro of this, another Baltimore cop uh, accused of selling dope, this time out in Baltimore County. Right, right. Um, so, the, the the I think the overarching question for a lot of people, one of many, is how deep does this go? How deep is this corruption? How deep is this culture of misconduct uh, in the Baltimore Police Department? Um, and I think the the answer that a lot of people fear is that it's almost endless. That there's we we haven't there we haven't I think the I think the fear of many people is that we have not reached the bottom. Well, and as we know, they 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 the federal prosecutors uh, subpoenaed more records from Desusa, and we will be following it to find out what happened because I think that is the case, and I I'm sure that the powers that be would like it to go away, but it didn't go anywhere. So. Listen, I, I appreciate Taya and Sean, you joining me for Land of the Unsolved. This is sort of an addendum to what we're doing, but we thought it was such an important development that we had to add it to the show so that people could keep following the case. And we will continue to follow it. And believe me, the Afro is going to continue to put Sean Suter on the front until the Baltimore Police Department decides it's going to tell the truth, which when that happens, the city will implode. <laughs> so thank you, Sean, for joining us. We appreciate it. And thank you, Taya. And thank you all for joining us on the Land of the Unsolved. The Land of the Unsolved is sponsored by Spot Crime, the number one crime mapping site in the country. Make sure to visit spotcrime.com to track crime in your neighborhood because safety begins with knowing.